What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Beyond the Bar podcast. I'm your host, Denise Satova. And today we're mixing it up a little bit. We were stepping into the exciting intersection of sports, data, future of football. And, and it really is super fascinating, at least to me it is. And today here we've got Eric Eager. He is, I think, he is a mastermind in sports analytics. He's been changing the game from the ground up. He has a very interesting background from his days as a professor to becoming a key player at Pro Football Focus. And now he is leading the charge at Sumer Sports. And his journey has just been super interesting. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. It's great to be on here. It's uh, so much fun to, to talk about uh, sports and to uh, talk about uh, life and its journeys. Yeah, no kidding. We actually, um, it, it, I mean, today is what we're recording. It's the second day after Super Bowl. Very exciting. And, and we actually started this conversation. And I always say, you know, I was not raised in the U.S., so I'm not a... a um, I'm not as uh, as uh, knowledgeable when it comes to the rules of football. It was more or less a soccer, but I'm, I'm fascinated. You have a human interest and the game was just incredible. And so my question to you was, you know, for someone like Mahomes, when you look at a guy like that, is that, is it, is it genetics? Is it leadership? I mean, how do you, how do you pull it off? What is it about him? Well, it, the answer is probably yes uh, to all of that. I, I grew up in Minnesota. I know you, you interviewed Matthew on his uh, on one of your last shows. His book is right behind my shoulder over here, uh, which is cool. Um, I grew I the first ever Twins game I went to in Minnes Minneapolis. Patrick Mahomes' dad, Pat Pat Mahomes, uh, was the starting pitcher in that game. So clearly, he's got some genetics uh, having his dad be a major league pitcher. Uh, but I think some of it is also just kind of mathematical, right? It's exponential in the way things work, where you, if if you're one of the, the major researchers in a field, then every all the grad students want to work with you. And then you have brilliant grad students working for you. They they teach you all these great things and you get your name on papers and you get your name on other papers. And, and so all of a sudden now you're a leading researcher in the field and everything sort of grows exponentially. Um, if you're a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, who has uh, Super Bowl experience, then that, uh, and you win, then the next time you're in the game, everybody's talking about how you have Super Bowl experience against the person against you. And so you immediately have that edge and that edge sort of compounds over time. And it's why you see, you know, everybody in statistics, like they talk about like the normal distribution, uh, which, which has what's what are called thin tails, meaning the probability of rare outcomes is relatively low. But in life, more, more often than not, you go to what are called power law distributions, what are called fat tails, which mean a lot of times you do get these like runaway outcomes. In the, in the National Football League, it's Tom Brady winning seven Super Bowls in, uh, you know, in life with, with wealth, right? It's, it's wealth isn't normally distributed. You have a, a very few uh, individuals with a lot of wealth. Uh, the Pareto principle being like 80% of the wealth is owned by 20% of the people, and, and you sort of get that that's sort of working in it. And all of that is basically what you're just describing, which is when you get resources, when you get success, that success gives you access to more success and more success. And Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City are just the next great example of that, where you know you get into the Super Bowl one year and now all of a sudden every team that plays you is almost over trying or 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 over they're they're not as loose as they could be because 
they're trying to slay the dragon that is you, which gives you an advantage over the time that you had when you were previously inexperienced. And so it, it's such a fun phenomenon and it, and it sort of uh, permeates kind of all aspects of life. What about psychology? Um, meaning dealing with the pressure of, you know, not playing in your home turf at, or dealing with the pressure of, um, you know, the media, uh, even just like for an ordinary person, right? To put yourself out there, that's not easy. Public speaking, being on social media. Um, what about that? How does that factor in? Because when I when I when I watch him, it's almost like he looks like a cyborg. It's like he is so focused, um, and it almost like he tunes it out. It's like there's just a feel, you know, and and that's it. There's a dirt, and and I have a goal. And, and there are others, obviously, and not just him, but. How how do you feel that plays into it, being able to sort of tune everything else out? Yeah, and I think all of that comes with success, right? I think when you have success, you end up with the confidence of being able to fail without it being uh, taken personally. Like, I, I always think about, you know, I, I do TV and radio, for example, and and if I predict a game wrong, it's like, well, I predicted games right a million times before. And so it doesn't it reflect on me personally that I get a game wrong. Whereas if this is the one shot you're ever going to have at something, you may or may not be tense. To your point about psychology, it's like with Mahomes, it's like if he never wins another game the rest of his life, he's a Hall of Famer. So with that in his back pocket, you know, this is a, like the foundation of kind of like every religion too, where it's like you have salvation. So you can kind of, you know, treat people well, you can do well at your job without sort of feeling that pressure, et cetera, et cetera, because you have the backdrop that is uh, the strength of whatever your belief system is. And, and I think for for people like Patrick Mahomes who have achieved so much, that is, that's the psychological backing that they have where you're like, I've already got so much bang to draw off of that I can try new things. I can I can explore new avenues. I can take chances and risks and you know and the same thing with investments the you know you look at a poker table for example you look at the, the financial markets oftentimes it's not even the player with the best hand or the best cards or the best business or the best investment it's more the person with the biggest bankroll that can lean on other people because they can yeah. uh you know they can withstand up and downs more than than somebody who doesn't and i think patrick mahomes in football is sort of the embodiment of that he's just got so much equity uh, in the game that he loves to stand on that he can uh, take chances and and, and uh, you know do everything from a position of strength and so things that might affect the other players like playing a game in Vegas or playing a game at the end when there's so much pressure on him I think all of those things impact different players differently and in many cases worse than they do uh, Mahomes who's the best player in the whole in the whole uh, sport. I almost want to. I'm tempted to leap forward to to discussion about data. You know, how do you take someone who may not be I'm going to be careful here as well positioned as Mahomes and get them close enough by using data. But before I ask that question, I want to explain your journey to being sort of a data analyst, data scientist, uh, because you've gone from playing college football to getting a PhD in math. That's super, super impressive. And now you're big name in sports analytics. How did you end up combining your love for football and, and math into this career is just fascinating. Yeah, I grew up loving sports and sports were always sort of my vehicle for trying to understand numbers. Like I would be playing the game. I was the annoying kid 
that was like counting the number of rebounds they had, counting the number of points they had. Uh, and I always sort of knew that. And I know coaches hate that. So, you know, when I was growing up a little bit further in, in, in my life, I just sort of stopped doing that and, 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 you know, learned to be more of a team player and everything. But that was sort of how I related. I, I always related to players uh, based upon how, how much they scored and how good they were uh, in, in that realm. And then I played football. I wasn't the best player in, in college. I, I thought that, you know, I, I, I actually made a, probably a bigger contribution tutoring the, the left and right tackle on my team on bus rides to and from the games uh, in math more than I probably did catching the ball or making my, any blocks myself on the football field. And, you know, you, you get to a certain point where, you know, you've had enough concussions or you had enough injuries where you're just like, it's time for me to move on. Um, I was lucky enough because I love sports so much that math came a little bit later to me. Uh, I started really like reading books about math and learning about the Euclids and the Laplaces. Laplace is my favorite mathematician, the Bases, the, those play, you know, those, those key players, Riemann, uh, Bernoulli, all, all eight or nine, you know, 15 of them. Uh, by the time, you know, I was like a senior in college, like I was so turned on by this idea of being a mathematician that football was kind of a secondary thought to me. By the time I was done playing, um, I had already wanted to go to grad school. So I, I went and accepted an offer even before my, my uh, eligibility was done. And so I went to the University of Nebraska and I, I wasn't even expecting necessarily to be still into football. Like I, I was kind of like wanted to put that life behind me. At the time, Moneyball was, was starting to become a thing in baseball. And I, I love baseball, but again, it was sort of more of a, a you know, a very uh, rudimentary love of the sport. Uh, and so I just like went and uh, got a PhD in applied math. I studied uh, mathematical biology. I wasn't really into, uh, you know, the numbers of football. I, I kept being a fan. It really couldn't escape me. And then when I became a professor, uh, I, I first three years, I published as many papers as I could. I became tenured when I was 29 years old. And so I was kind of in this weird spot where I was young. I had accomplished a lot of like the modest goals I thought of that I, you know, as far as publishing papers and getting grants and everything that I ultimately started consulting for a bunch of different companies. And then eventually Pro Football Focus, which was owned at the time by Chris Collinsworth, who I, I admired quite a bit as the, the commentator on, on Sunday Night Football. Uh, and they, I was convinced that a lot of the, the money ball stuff that was done in baseball should have been done in football. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, to much of my surprise, once I started digging into a lot of the possibilities there, it wasn't. And so I was very fortunate that I was able to uh, get my hands dirty on probably the richest data set that at the time existed in football and, you know, pin down some of the, the key solutions to a lot of the problems. Eventually, I left academia to work for PFF full time. I ran research and development there for a number of years. And then uh, in 2022, I joined Thomas Dimitrov, who's the former general manager of the Falcons. Uh, and we we helped start Sumer Sports with you know Paul Tudor Jones and his son Jack started the company and now we're uh, in charge of uh, of a great deal of that company right now. Wow, that was a fast track. That is fascinating. So there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about data, and um, you know how does in simple terms, as if you were explaining it to you, 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 your daughter turned eleven, right? Was it last last week? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, during yeah, Super Bowl week is always every every year. Yep. Yeah. So if you were explaining it to her, how would you explain data analytics and and how you know where I'm going with this? 
you know, how, how do you see it changing or maybe already has changed how football teams make decisions? But then, you know, sort of a, the big picture is because the data seems to be the big buzzwords and it seems to be creating opportunities, you know, for young students who may be studying, um, you know, statistics and, and the only sort of, uh, or not the only, but um, like the obvious field to go into was to become a pension actuary. I mean, who the heck wants to do that? Yeah. I mean, when I was a professor, when I was a student, that was, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to get a degree, degree in math, you had to be an actuary, a math yeah. teacher, or go and get your PhD. And at the time, I didn't really, really want to teach. I came to like teaching a decent amount, but I, I never wanted to teach like six hours a day, like a high school teacher. Uh, God bless them. Actuary was one. I did I did do a decent amount of actuarial studies when I was in college. And then you could go and get a PhD. But even like when you're a PhD, like all the people that are teaching you, they got their degree and are teaching at a university. So they're like, they're they're looking at replacing themselves, but like the economy economics of it are, they should only have to replace themselves once in the course of their career because mm -hmm. there aren't that the population growth in the U.S. is not that big, and the university growth is even smaller, and so, you know, they're kind of not equipping us all that well. Uh, my PhD advisors, you know, one's an ecology professor, one's a math professor. They don't really have any industry experience. And so mm. you're not that equipped when you get to become a professor to tell students like what's possible for them. And, you know, once I got in, you know, I had consulting gigs with, you know, the United States Geological Survey, the, um, the EPA, uh, you know, things like that. One of the things that precipitated me leaving academia to go and work in football full time was I had a grant proposal to build uh, models to help prevent birds getting killed by windmills and the Trump administration turned it down. And so I was just like, I, I don't know if I'm ever gonna get federal funding to do some of this research. And so I, I went into football, which seemed more friendly, but you know, as you sort of grow, like data science has really uncovered a lot of this, you know, a, a lot of the applications. And if I was gonna talk to my, you know, tell my daughter, like, you know, kind of where this applies, it's, you know, we have decisions we make in life all the time. And whether those decisions are, you know, who our friends are or what house we buy or who we marry, you know, a lot of times those decisions, you make those decisions with your gut, you trust your gut. And I think a lot of times, a lot of those decisions and it, 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 some of them in sports, they, they are reserved for your gut. Some of those decisions you need to make, uh, you know, with, with your heart and things like that, because you don't really want to say, oh, I married somebody based upon an algorithm. That, that to me seems uh, like a heartless thing to do. <laughs> Um, but there are some decisions like which college you should go to or yeah. which house should you, you should buy or should you go for this fourth down or should you prefer a linebacker over a cornerback in the draft? Those things, data might not be able to dictate how you make those decisions, but data can help you better understand the consequences of making either side of the decision. And I think that that right now is... is is a good way. And then also being data-driven can help you understand what is being done to you, right? When you open TikTok, why are you being shown this video and not that video? When you are, when Twitter is now showing you this recommendation and not that recommendation, why? Why, it, why are they sending certain women pregnancy products in the mail and other women not pregnancy products in the mail? Like, why is that happening? And all this kind of stuff is, is, is important to know 
because there are some companies that would want you to make all of your decisions based upon algorithms. And so in order to combat that, you have to, you have, to have a fair fight. And having a fair fight uh, amounts to knowing uh, what, what goes into some of these things. And so that, that's, that's incredibly important. I like what you're saying because you're not saying the data will replace the the gut instinct, so to speak. You almost need both the quantitative, the qualitative. Uh, going back to our conversation about Mahomes, how can you use the data to cultivate? Hmm, to cultivate, to to attract, or maybe to identify, you know, someone like him. Uh, you know, because we you we talked about how it's it's a combination of so many different factors, not just one or two. But how could data potentially identify someone like that? Well, I don't know if the data can come in and say, on average, this, like, I was a huge proponent of drafting Patrick Holmes. Now, I'm a Kansas City fan, and I, when they drafted him, I was ecstatic. It's easy to say after the fact. I think that, you know, there, <laughs> there's also articles I wrote, like, where I was like, here's what we missed about him. I mm. think that going back and looking at him and trying to be descriptive about what why we missed on him could also be faulty too because sometimes his situation just helps him so much as well it's it you know and the other part is there are just there are just distributions in life so patrick mahomes is mean if he you know, his average if he goes to the average of 32 teams maybe he's not quite as good but maybe he went to the best situation and so we're getting the 95th percentile of him statistics mm. can allow us to sort of understand and and have a and have a uh, language upon which to frame what we're seeing with with Patrick Mahomes it wasn't that the average outcome was that much better than the other players in his draft Mitch Trubisky and Deshaun Watson uh and Deshaun Kaiser it was more that maybe the the tail outcome as I talked about earlier the the 95th percentile the 99th percentile for him was so much higher and maybe what Kansas City saw was we have an infrastructure with great supporting cast with a great head coach with a great front office if we hit on all of those things the 95th percentile for him is so much better than all the other players I stated even if the averages are about the same or maybe in his case maybe even projected averages worse than the other guys that are with him the ceiling is higher and in football you're almost always drafting for uh, the ceiling uh, of a player's distribution, um, because again, no one really cares. Like we're we're at Super Bowl Wednesday, right? Or Super yeah, we're at Super yeah. Bowl Tuesday today. No one really cares who. No one remembers who the Chiefs beat to go to the Super Bowl. The Ravens. No one's going to remember that in a, in a month. Um, we yeah. remember who won the game, and yeah. in some ways, like you're optimizing for the for your tail outcomes, not the median outcomes. And math can help you do that. And humans are incredibly bad at that. And that that could be a, a use case. And, and a lot of other cases is Patrick Mahomes can be, as I said earlier, the we can, it, it can be the humbling experience, which is to say math couldn't help us find Mahomes. Let's go back mm -hmm. and see where we what we missed and where we messed up. And there's a number of quarterbacks, Josh Allen being one of them. I think Jordan Love is about to be one of them, where traditional ways of looking at the position have left us wanting more from an analysis standpoint. And then the question becomes, is there, is it just variance? Is it just noise? Is this, is there irreducible complexity to what we're trying to understand here? Or 
are there clues that we've missed for decades that we can lean in on? One of them, for example, with Patrick Mahomes is the fact that he avoids sacks at a rate that, and he did in college, at a rate that is just incredible. And that thing has been one of the stickiest statistics throughout college to pro for almost every quarterback, good and bad, uh, forever. And that was something that was not part of the discussion uh, when he was drafted out of Texas Tech in 2017. Interesting. It really is just another angle, and, and it's a really helpful tool. Again, not the single most important tool, but very important tool. You also teach um, at Wharton's Moneyball Training Academy. Um, what's what's the biggest thing that you want the students to learn? And 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 also, I'm always curious. Well, what are what are they curious about? I, the curiosity is the biggest thing I want them to learn. I think that the biggest thing is you don't go into this endeavor with a goal in mind. And, and I take so. In a position like mine, you you get a lot of people who email you and like, hey, I want a job in sports. And you and I've been in this position before where I've had relationships where, you know, I there was there was always like, a, oh, you know, there there could be something that comes to this. And so we all fall prey to this. Yeah. And I think that you know, as you get older, you you prize this. And I always, when I was a professor, that was always so annoying when students. You, you get done with a proof or you get done with a solution and you're like, are there any questions? And a student would be like, hey, when are we gonna get our tests back? Or what's the curve on this test? And you're like, I just want you to learn the material. I just want you to appreciate the material. I just want you to really understand what's going on here. And what I love about the Wharton Moneyball group is for the most part, you know, they're so young at that point that they don't, like the vocational aspect of it is not, hasn't dawned on them yet where they really do want to understand sports for their own sake and when you get older you know like me like it can be less that way we have families to support we have you know you, i eventually want to be on a team someday where i where i can win a championship and so there's vocational aspects and goals there i think that i've been able to maintain some of the the uh Academics, the wrong word, but like intellectual uh, curiosity. But for me, the best part of the Wharton School is like when they're younger, that intellectual curiosity is the majority of their motivation for it. I want to know more about tennis. The students who like tennis, I want to love. I want to learn more about esports. The students want to learn more about esports. And as a, and as an instructor, like you get these questions and you think about, okay, what about League of Legends is going to tie back to football, and what can I learn from it? Uh, you know, one of the, the teams that I admire the most in the NFL, the Baltimore Ravens, one of the reasons why is, uh, you know, their man, one of their manager, Van Alix, is actually now the director of player personnel for the Chargers as of two weeks ago. Corey Craywick, he won a Stanley Cup as a member of the Chicago Blackhawks. So he came from hockey. Uh, another one of their uh, analytics people, Derek Yam, he worked at Statsbomb, which is a predominantly soccer company. He went to go work for them as well. Being able to take ideas from other sports and have that that curiosity as well, to me is 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 a, a very cherished uh, you know um, to me is a very cherished uh, trait in people being able to sort of have the curiosity to bounce back and forth. I'm not as like good at understanding soccer or baseball or things like that. It's it's a much more of a chore for me to do it. But I love the fact that like the Wharton School and and being able to teach those students. Uh, 
who have those curiosities kind of forces me uh, into that realm. Yeah, you, you're describing a, an entirely different world. Who would have thought that? Um, it, it is opening up a set of gateways, and uh, it, it's like there's this integration. Um, and the curiosity that's, I, I, you know, I've always been big on um, critical thinking, asking lots of questions, and, and that's that's really what fueled me to start this podcast. There's no pattern in my, maybe it's the guest pattern that started sort of in, in, the, in the legal field, but you know, if I meet someone who's very interesting and willing to share their story, I'm, I'm all over that. I think that's, that's how we learn. Um, you wrote, let's talk about your book. You wrote a book, Football Analytics with Python and R. What, what were you hoping to accomplish with, with this book? And what is the message in it? If I say that, like, maintaining a friendship was like actually the the key motivation like i would that's the truth um one of my best friends richard erickson uh and i you know we were we were academics together he actually worked at the united states geological survey while i was a professor we built like we have papers on how to model uh of the the avoidance of birds and bats running into windmills like we were we were like mathematical biologists together and so then That's I, so cool. you know, when I took the football job, I, I left town and we stayed friends, of course. And he messaged me, he said, hey, Eric, like, I really miss working with you. Uh, do you want to write a football book together? I'm like, Richard, you don't know anything about football. And he said, yeah, but you like, I know how to format a book. I know how to code better than you. And which he's absolutely right. He does. And, and he said, you know, let's do this. And I said, okay, well, I don't really have the time for this. I was back at Pro Football Focus. I was still running uh, R&D there. And so I was like, okay, but I do agree. Like we need to spend more time together. So I was like, I'll write a proposal to O'Reilly. And if they turn me down, you'll never speak of this again. And if they accept it, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I wrote a, a half a page proposal to the book company and they accepted it in six hours. Yeah, because of course, like in hindsight, everybody wants a football analytics book and, yeah. and no one had written one yet. Um, and so wow. they wanted it and we we it took a few different rewritings we started writing it in the summer of 2022 uh we finished it in the in the or we started writing it in the, in the mostly in the winter of 2022 and then we got it done in the in the summer of 2023 so it took a while um but it was it was a lot of fun and now like i always say this in, in hindsight now the reason that this book is so great is i get so many messages from people who want to be interns or want advice on how to get in the sport or i think even better is i'm i'm very prolific in media where like i do podcasts and stuff not 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 like this kind of podcast which is a lot of fun and different than I, what i'm used to but i do sports podcasts where people want to learn about how to do analytics in sports or how to even think the way that i do and now instead of like a hodgepodge of different ways in which i can like uh, point somebody in a direction of what I do, I can just say, Hey, like I have a book and if you want to buy it, like I'd love to sign it for you or something, but, or I can, you know, you just purchase the book. Like now I have like a, a link. I can just send people who message me on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever and ask, like, how do I do what you do? I could be like, Hey, here's an intro book, but it, it's crazy how most things don't, you start something with the intention that's way different than and what ends up being the reason the, the ultimate reason why something has value. And so the reason I started the book was to maintain my friendship with Richard, my co-author, 
And the, the actual reason is so that I can continue to serve the community now that I'm getting older and I don't have the infinite energy that I once had. Birds and bats, why? Why did you care about that topic? Well, the the math was fun to me. Like I, flip, like, I'm a weird applied mathematician in that like the first <laughs> I love decade of my, the first decade of my career, I did the applied math because I liked the structures that I was working with. Um, now, I wasn't perfect. Like the first ever theorem I proved uh, was about a plant seed bank system where, and, and if anybody doesn't know, like a lot of plants, because of what's called environmental stochasticity, which is like weather and, and stuff like that, they store what's called the seed bank. So they create seeds and not all the seeds actually germinate and become the new plant. A lot of them stay in the seed bank, which I think would resonate with a lot of humans because we put money in the bank and we don't spend it all the time when we make money. And plants will plants do it too, and they do it more often. And this is evolution, and and they deal with evolutionary pressures this way. We save money for a rainy day. That's the expression. They do it as well. And and so the more uh, random the environment is, the more that the seed bank matters to the plant. And so mm. I built this entire like system and proved a bunch of theorems about this dynamical system. And I was so proud of myself, you know, whenever a mathematician proves a theorem, they, they think they're awesome. And, and I, I was no different. And I went ahead and, and went to this woman's office, Diana Pilsen, who's a was a tenure full professor in biology. And I said, Hey, I have this theorem about your your system. And she goes, Well, Eric, this is that isn't actually how it works. And this is like my first introduction to actually how to be an applied mathematician. And she's like, Well, Eric, like, this is actually how randomness is introduced into the system and it's multiplicative and not additive and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, like I got to learn all this new math now. And it's so funny because I think that that's how a lot of applied mathematicians fail in industry and fail in, 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 in our line of work in football, for example. It's like you have a hammer and everything looks like a nail in reality, like you have to make the tool for the particular nail that you're working with. And so the second half of my PhD program was all amounting to learning this new set of math so that I could solve Diana's problems. And then I did, and that was, that was how it ended up working. And then I realized that it applied to all kinds of things like birds and bats, because again, with birds and bats, you have to, uh, you know, it's about like their flight patterns are about disturbances to the system. And so you, you can sort of mitigate the risks by 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 putting you know windmills in different places and knowing sort of their flight patterns how they respond to environments and things like that and their different survival probabilities and all that kind of stuff and ultimately like i still liked and gravitated towards those kind of problems because those were the the math the mathematical systems i was very well versed in yeah and then i got into football and those were mathematical systems i wasn't well versed in and so i had to learn all this new math again and this is again the sort of like the life cycle of a mathematician whereas you get really comfortable working on one kind of problem and then the and then the data or the problem you're working changes and you have to get better at it and it's it's that it's why the the job is you know a satisfying one that is so fascinating it really it really is so now you are the head of the research and development at sumer sports what's the vision for, for the company and then for, you know, interns who are interested in the data science, what, what type of opportunities are there? 
Yeah, I mean, Paul and his son Jack, like Paul Tudor Jones is one of the the most successful uh, um, macro traders in the world. His son Jack is, uh, you know, was a data science major uh, at Stanford and 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 has a lot of chops there, is a, is a lifelong Giants fan and can tell you all the players that played for, for New York through all those years and as a really fun kid to talk to. And, and you know, they, I think, Paul has this portfolio analysis bend where he's, you know, his entire career is is buying and selling and making sure that, uh, you know, he has all of his risks properly assessed for. And football rosters are not necessarily the same as that, but you can squint and make them similar. And so a lot of, you know, what drew me there at Pro Football Focus, we had player evaluation tools. We had models that sort of told you how good the player was and how good the player would be and all this kind of stuff. But that was kind of the what. And and eventually we transitioned into the so what, which is, again, this is, and then predicting, so there will be. And then there's this sort of next step, which is to say, and then you should do this. And that's kind of what was a, a very, uh, I don't know, attractive part for me. Now, it's still a really hard problem because all of these teams are incredibly unique in how they grade players and their time horizons and how, uh, and schemes. You know, you look at, for example, the Super Bowl that we just saw, Kansas City, the first team in NFL history to win a Super Bowl with the quarterback making the most money in the league. Uh, the last two years, they were the first team in the NFL history to win a Super Bowl with a quarterback making more than 14% of the salary cap. And so they have a really expensive, amazing quarterback, and their front office has to build a roster around him that is resilient and inexpensive. The 49ers have a quarterback that's making less than a million dollars, and so they can build around him more, they can build around him with players who make more money because he doesn't take up so much of the salary cap himself. And so our recommendation for a team like San Francisco would be different than a team like Kansas City, uh, it, you know, once everything is built out. Uh, a team like Carolina might be a little bit further, uh, might be a little bit behind in terms of like where they're trying to be as far as winning a Super Bowl, whereas a team like Buffalo has wanted to win a Super Bowl for the last five years and can't get over the hump. Our recommendations for Buffalo are going to be different than Carolina. Um, there are teams who want to win a Super Bowl but may not be ready. And is it our place to say, where is our place in the recommendation cycle to say you're not ready? Or is or do we just say, hey, given this is what you want, this is what you should do. Like there are all kinds of different, really challenging problems that make our job at Sumer hard. And I think. Uh, one that I don't, I think anybody that starts a football analytics company uh, maybe under underestimates. And, and I think that that has been the case for almost anybody that's tried to work in this business. But you love the challenge. I do. I mean, I think that I, I always talk about what I do as a practice. Like I, you know, yeah. 2000, 2020, I came out with wins above replacement. I was the first person ever come up with a, a public wins above replacement model for football for every position. Ron Yurko, who's a brilliant professor at Carnegie Mellon, did it for quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends. Um, and he did a very good job as well. Uh, and But like the earlier versions of that had real issues. And so you learn from that. You learn from uh, you know feedback from the league or feedback from the marketplace. Uh, 
I've done, you know, I've had different analyses to talk about, you know, different things about coverage versus pass rush that I think at the time, given the data that we had at the time was probably the best I could have done. But now that I know more and I have access to different people and their brilliant opinions, I maybe, maybe am not as strong on, on what I thought. And, and, and so all of these things, all those hard worn um, nuances and evolving not only I evolved, but the, I think the game itself evolves. The you know the NFL uh, average NFL game was like a touchdown lower uh, in total points to this year than it was during the pandemic year of 2020. So like, yeah. as the game evolves, are you willing to evolve with it? But also, are you willing to take feedback that you were wrong in the past and change it as well? And there, so there that that even that particular thing about like being right or wrong about the constituent pieces of what you're working on. Mm as well as being able to put them together in a way that the teams want and being sensitive to their needs, like all of those are challenges in the space. Talking about humility, right? And empathy. I know we had a brief conversation. We talked about pet peeves, being able to put yourself in, 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 in somebody else's shoes. Um, I know that resonates with you. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like the number one place where people fail, right? And and, yeah. and even even um, framing it like that seems cheap, right? Like where you don't want to, yeah. empathy is not a tool to keep you from failing in life, right? <laughs> you know, they, they, <laughs> I don't think you want to think about empathy as like a tool uh, to, to achieve better. But like yeah. empathy, empathy is the place where you can, the lack of it just sort of it sticks out like a sore thumb in, in almost yeah. every part of life if you don't know um you know where somebody's coming from on a bad day on a good day uh you know where somebody's coming from if you're trying to sell them something if they're trying to sell something to you uh you know if you're uh, where how they're approaching you politically uh that kind of thing like there's just so much where you as you grow up and you think about kind of where wherever you've made a mistake in the past, it's almost always been from a position of not really understanding the world around you. And almost almost every single time, it's been about not looking at things through another person's eyes. And that doesn't mean that they're right. And that doesn't mean that you have to relent on, on your beliefs or your values, but it does help you navigate the system that you're in. And I would say for the majority of the mistakes that I've made in, in my life, um, that has you know good or bad whether i was right or wrong and oftentimes it doesn't even matter um whether you're right or wrong uh, a lack of empathy has almost always been the core of it and uh you know as you sort of as you sort of move in and, and look at sort of trying to be a business that serves people as you try to be in a in a situation like in football analytics you're thinking about there was this whole movement about like running backs don't matter which the like Think about that from a perspective of like, okay, most running backs in the NFL are African-American, for example. Okay, telling an entire group of people who are predominantly from a historically discriminated against group that they don't matter. Okay, how does that sound to people? And, right. and of course, people like me would say when, we've, when, we, when that was a first, a flippant first order statement, that's not how we meant it. But that doesn't matter, right? It's, it's how it's taken that that matters. Yeah. And so a lot of us, like me, I just like stops talking that way. Um, you know, when, when you, when you look at it and try to, and, and it's made me a much better communicator about certain things, like 
I don't necessarily know if I was running a football team, if I would use a first round pick on a running back. But I also don't think if the running backs coach came up to me and said, hey, I really think that this running back's worth a first round pick. Would I be as dismissive as, as I was when I was younger? Like, so you, you don't necessarily have to change how you interpret or how you apply your research or your work or your toil. But I think that you, if you understand where people come from, you can be a far a more effective communicator. Communication is a key. You're right. You don't have to agree, accepting that we have a different set of preferences from our childhood that we carry. And, and, and that's, I think it's a starting point is, you know, I'll, I'll listen to you, you listen to me. And, and yes, we would, I think, eliminate a lot of conflict. Um, how do you, you're out there in public. How do you deal with, um, what would you call them? You know, people who troll the social media and just for the sake of leaving a negative comment, they do it. I mean, I personally just deploy a lot of compassion um, because it makes you wonder, you know, what what their upbringing was like, if there's a need to do that. And to me, it's different than a constructive criticism. How, how do you, how is that for you internally? Oh, it was a lot harder a lot, a lot of years ago. Like, I think to the point of what we just talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, like when you're younger and you're trying to start out, it hurts. Like the first... Mm -hmm teaching eval that called me a bleeping idiot or the first uh, you know, podcast comment that said I, I was clueless. They're probably right, by the way. And that's the other part where you, you, you have to have the humility to realize that people who are trolling you are probably doing so for a reason. And then there's also, you know, I think that high, a lot of high achievers, there are two different kind of high achievers. There are kind of the sociopathic ones, maybe that like, never they never let it get to them maybe i think it's sociopathic because i can't be that way and then there's people who are are far more introspective that take it all in i i'm the second part where i'm like i take it all in mm. but as i've got and and you take it and you 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 learn from it and you realize that there, this can't possibly be personal because they don't know me they don't know that what I had for breakfast. They don't know who my kids are. They don't know who my wife is. They don't, they don't know where I came from. They don't know what kids used to make fun of me for when I was in high school and why I have these insecurities. And so they don't know, and they don't know what I'd rather be do. Like they don't, they don't know that this is my dream job or this isn't my dream job or whatever. They don't know any of these things about you. So they can't possibly be personal. And so they, I would never take their criticism the same way I'd take criticism from my boss, Thomas Dimitrov, who's one of my best friends, who knows almost everything about me now, and can actually tell me like, hey, I think that you're an idiot for saying this. And he would never say it that way. But he, he was saying like, given everything I know about you, which is everything at this point, you really screwed up by acting this way. That's really mm -hmm. going to actually resonate with me more than somebody who nameless, faceless person doesn't know me. Um, now I've been fiery in the past. Uh, you know, when I started interviewing for front office jobs in the NFL, like I, I deleted a lot of social media and stuff like, <laughs> and that's because I've said some things back to people. Now I sort of enjoy the sparring because I very much don't take it personally myself. And so when I go back at somebody, I certainly don't mean it to them personally, but I've also stopped that because again, because of the empathy bit, like you don't know, somebody's probably coming at you to hurt you because they're hurt. And so, right. th so 
you know, you, you realize that that's probably not a great way to spend your time. I'm not perfect. I still do it, but I do it a lot less. Um, but as I've gotten older to the point about Patrick Mahomes, it's like once you gain success in your career, you realize that like a lot of this is jealousy. A lot of this is envy. A lot of this yeah. is just trying to knock you down a peg and get you off your, your, get you out of your zone. A lot of this is trying to get you in trouble um, so that you can lose a position that other people want and want to take from you. And so you just don't, you just don't deal with it. But there are people, and, and it's funny, one of my, I, I don't even know if I would consider him a good friend yet, but one of one, a person that I've hung out with now, who's incredibly successful, um, was a person that used to troll me on Twitter. And eventually I just used to, I just played back at him a little bit and we struck up a friendship and now like we wow. talk to each other all the time and he's incredibly fun. And if I, and if I, I, I just took myself a little less seriously once and it was worth it. And, and I think that that's, that's, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's common, nor do I think anybody should actually do that, but it, it's an <laughs> anecdote of, of how you can, uh, you can, um, you know, if you're not so sensitive to these things, you can obviously, uh, you know, make the best of them. Thanks for sharing that. That's, that's interesting. I actually, the way I flipped it around and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a robot, but when I do see it, it actually, it's, it teaches me something about me. And I, and I realize um, that uh, whenever something that I read or see hits my stuff, there's a reason for it. Whereas somebody who's, you know, sitting next to me reading the same thing may not have such a reaction. So I always go into myself and ask myself, why is it hitting my stuff? What, what is it about it that's really pissing me off? And um, so just like you, being able to, yeah, I can, I can go at it with somebody just for the sake of, you know, arguing, but that's, that's, that's uh, a mute, um, you know, that's not the point, and, but it's coming at it from why is it hitting my stuff? What am I learning about myself? And then, you know, and then deploying compassion and then just, and if it's, if it gets extreme, which thankfully not yet, you know, just block, you know, block their ass and, and just move on, you know, so but yeah, this is this is really fun. Look, finally, what um, your daughters? I mean, they're getting they're getting into sports too, right? How do you share your love for football with them? But at the same time, like, how do you encourage them? You know, to find their own way, their own path. Well, the one thing I, you know, my parents and I, like, we are so different in a lot of ways. I think politically different. You know, my my dad never played sports really after a certain age. My mother certainly didn't. But what I appreciate so much about them was they came to every game. Uh, they they came to the Super Bowl. The you know, and and what's funny is I grew up in Minnesota. Wow. Like I didn't. My dad's a Vikings fan. I didn't grow up a Vikings fan. Well, I I grew up rooting for the same team as my dad. But then when I got older, I'm like, I don't need to root for this team anymore. All they've done is break my heart as a kid. And so I you know went to Nebraska Lincoln and I didn't make any money. The only team that was on TV when I was there was the Chiefs, and that's how I became a Chiefs fan. And wait, so wait, that's wait, like wait, wait. I have a question right here about what you said. How do you make that switch when so many years, right? You're 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 rooted yeah. for one team. How how does that how does that happen? Well, I'll say this, and I know your your husband's a Vikings fan, I think. So I Yeah, I'll say yeah, this he's very, frustrated as hell. <laughs> I'll say this very I'll say this very uh empath empathetically. They made it easy. <laughs> they made it pretty yeah, easy. Like true. like They've lost, yeah. the, they lost the NFC championship game on my birthday, like three times as a kid. Um, it, it, they, 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 growing up, it was just like heartbreak after heartbreak. And so at some point you're like, 
and, and and so then they weren't on TV when I was living in Lincoln. And so I and I wasn't making enough money as a grad student to like go, you know, to get cable or anything. So I just watched the Chiefs and I was like, I kind of like the colors better than I like purple. I kind of like and I'm like, wait, I'm an adult. I can pick my favorite team. <laughs> and they were also like rumored to move to L.A. And so I was just like, go to L.A. then. I don't um, and I'm never going to live in Minnesota. Get, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so okay. I picked my own favorite team. And so to my parents' credit, my parents came over that they live in Atlanta for the winter just to, to see their grandkids. And they came over and watched me watch my favorite team, my you know Chiefs, the team I didn't grow up rooting for, but the team I root for now. And they came and watched me watch the Chiefs. Uh, and so, like, they're so, you know, even though, again, we don't agree on a ton, but, like, the way in which they've been able to at least support, you know, certain aspects of my life, despite the fact they may not understand or even agree with it, is inspirational for me. And so I look at my kids and like my daughters play the cross. I don't know anything about the cross. And frankly, the coach after the game, they play on Sundays, takes a little too long for my taste. Like I need to go watch the games for my job. But like I love watching, you know, my my kids play sports. My my one daughter's in basketball, one's in volleyball. Obviously, as a as a guy growing up in Minnesota, you didn't play volleyball growing up. Um, I think they do now, which is awesome. But like, I just love the fact that, like, I can enjoy what they do. My one daughter's an artist. She has a YouTube uh, channel called uh, Hershey Dragon, which is which is really cool. She makes these dragons and stuff. And so, like, I like I just like being able to support what they do and their passions and stuff like that. And to me, that's how I can connect with them. Now, luckily for me, my oldest is a Chiefs. Like, she loves watching the Chiefs with me. So, like, we just watch them together. My youngest, is, of course, is the contrarian. She's up there rooting against everything that I love. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's fun to watch them grow up and it's fun to, to be able to, um, you know, for them to grow up and appreciate who their dad is, but also grow up with their own set of tastes and and be able to impart those tastes on me, uh, you know, as somebody who, um, you know, is, is able to, to enjoy them for who they are and not necessarily try to make them into smaller versions of who I am. Well, I don't know what it's going to take to turn the Vikings around, but yeah, it's uh that's that's honest. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's <laughs> but I guess that's a whole another discussion. Hey Eric, thanks again for joining us today and and sharing your really interesting, fun and an incredible journey. Denise, this was awesome. I I enjoy uh, just getting to chat about uh chat about life. It's so much fun and uh it's it's such a gift. So thank you. And to our listeners, Eric's book, Football Analytics with Python and R, is a must-read for anyone interested in data behind the game. And, of course, you can get the book and check out more about Eric at the links below. And don't forget to hit subscribe button on our YouTube channel, Beyond the Bar Podcast, and follow us on social media. Until next time, stay curious and inspired.